You strive to innovate, to propel payments forward. But what if you could do even more, access more people, and add more value? With Discover Global Network, you can. Accepted in more than 200 countries, with over 270 million cardholders around the globe, we help you grow further, faster. As the world's fastest-growing payments network, see just how much progress we can make together. Discover Global Network. Accelerate progress. When it comes to delivering customer support, there are some things you don't want teams to hear. Intercom's streamlined support platform clears up space for more organized workflows and peace of mind. Our business messenger uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Who doesn't like the sound of that? Intercom. Less of this. And more of this. To learn more, go to intercom.com support. The evidence against Alan Weisselberg was significantly stronger than I suspected. John, you coined the phrase, the smoking spreadsheet. Uh, which I think is is a very clear piece of evidence. Another piece of evidence that jumped off the page to me is they have evidence that Alan Weisselberg tampered with a record. They allege in the indictment that Weisselberg told another unnamed person at the Trump org, take my name off that document. There was a notation that said her Alan Weisselberg. Weisselberg said, get my name off there. That is really incriminating evidence. So if Alan Weisselberg sitting there with his attorneys today, I think his attorneys have to tell him, look, they have a strong case against you. You're about to turn 74 years old, Alan. And if you get convicted here, you could go away for several years. So you need to let that sit for a bit as a prosecutor. But that indictment sent a message yesterday. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Happy Fourth of July, folks. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a deep dive into all the dirty details surrounding last Thursday's indictment of the Trump Organization and Alan Weisselberg, who together were charged with a total of 25, yeah, that's right, 25 separate criminal counts stemming from a decades-long scheme in which they paid high-level executives a huge chunk of their real salaries off the books. The Trump Organization's longtime CFO appearing in handcuffs, indicted along with the company that bears the former president's name, accused of what prosecutors called a sweeping and audacious tax fraud scheme. They allege the Trump Organization, over the last 15 years, paid top execs off the books, giving out fringe benefits. The scheme was intended to allow certain employees to substantially understate their compensation from the Trump Organization so that they could and did pay less federal, state, and local taxes in amounts that were significantly less than the amounts that should have been paid, according to the indictment. I've spent the past few days poring over the indictment so you don't have to. And while it's not the knockout blow some were hoping would deliver Donald Trump in a van to Rikers Island, it is a start of something much bigger. And Weisselberg, despite the bluster of Trump's attorneys, will be facing some dark days to come if he chooses not to flip on the Donald. I don't think there's any question that the DA's office very much wanted to get um, Alan Weisenberg to testify against either uh, or both the Trump Organization and Donald Trump. But sometimes 
it really takes bringing the indictment and having him stare it in the face for reality to set in. Trump may not have been formally charged, but make no mistake, this initial case is an indictment of how he did business at the company that bears his eponymous name, that he ran for almost five decades, and that he reportedly micromanaged. Even with his damaged reputation, the indictment tarnishes further the once-gilded Trump brand. The Trump brand is already a brand in crisis. It has been for years. Seems like maybe the Trump organization as a business and a brand might not be in a position to withstand a 10-count felony indictment plus 15 felony counts against its chief financial officer. Bloomberg notes that, quote, when financiers see the charges, their thoughts may turn to the company's ability to refinance more than $590 million of debt coming due within the next four years, more than half of which Trump personally guaranteed. Indictment of the Trump organization comes during what appears to be the company Company's most difficult moment since Trump's financial crash in the early 1990s. Quote, during that period, Trump found himself hundreds of millions of dollars in debt and he lost control of prized assets, including an airline, a yacht, and New York's Plaza Hotel. His business empire did not fully recover for a decade until Trump gained television fame and made tens of millions as the star of NBC's The Apprentice. But this isn't penny any shit, folks. The indictment takes pains to portray the schemes to defraud as pervasive to make clear that a number of executives benefited from it and to describe Weisselberg as one of the largest beneficiaries of the scheme, raising the question of who else might have benefited as much as the company's second-in-command. Prosecutors already have announced that their investigation is ongoing and apparently have not ruled out charging the ex-president. When asked by defense lawyers whether Trump would be included in the indictment, government lawyers reportedly answered, not now. Here are the rules of evidence uh, that will pertain a trial, permit statements by representatives or agents of the company under certain circumstances to be admissible against the company at trial. And so the more he talks, the more he blathers, the more nonsense that he says, particularly about this case and what the company did or didn't do and what he knew or didn't know, uh, all of that might help the prosecutors at trial prove the elements of the crimes against the Trump organization. As Tony Soprano once said, revenge is like eating cold cuts. So I gotta tell you folks, I'm smiling ear to ear as I read this, knowing that they've got Allen dead to right with these charges. For lack of a better word, the man is completely and totally fucked. Let's take a look at the rest of the indictment. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office alleges the scheme went on for 15 years and has charged the Trump Organization and Weisselberg with criminal tax fraud, falsifying business records, grand larceny, and scheming to defraud the government. My father, after almost 50 years of employment, paid for his grandkids' private school in New York City. My dad did that because he's a good guy. Takes care of his employees. Weisselberg was arraigned in Manhattan criminal court hours after he surrendered to authorities and was forced to do the perp walk into the courtroom wearing handcuffs. How do you like wearing those bracelets, Alan? Not so much, I bet. He pled not guilty to all charges as expected. But let me tell you, when they put those cuffs on, your whole life fucking flashes before your eyes. I don't care who you are or how tough you are, you're gonna think long and hard about taking the rap for Donald Trump. 
the signal to Weiselberg and others is get on board now because we're not afraid to bring charges and we're going to be incredibly detailed and thorough in our investigation because you know what they did bring yesterday was impressive. The longtime Trump confidant described in the indictment as one of the largest individual beneficiaries is accused of hiding 1.76 million dollars in indirect employee compensation that he received from the Trump organization over 12 years from 2005 until 2017. Prosecutors suggest that there were others involved who remain unidentified and refer several times to an unnamed, unindicted co-conspirator number one. I wonder who that could be. The indirect compensation was intentionally not included on Weisselberg's W-2 forms or otherwise reported to authorities, and no income taxes were withheld by the corporate defendants in connection with the indirect compensation, prosecutors said. The indictment, unsealed in court Thursday at 2.30 p.m., claims that the CFO also cheated New York City taxes by hiding the fact that he lived there, ultimately dodging $901,112 in federal, state, and city taxes. Outside the courtroom, Trump Organization lawyer Alan Futterfuss whined that the charges were politically motivated. These charges are unprecedented. They are unique. It sets a, uh, a precedent, I think, In 244 years, we have not had a local prosecutor go after a former president of the United States um, or his employees or his company. And that is a a significant line to cross. And quite frankly, not just as a lawyer, but as a citizen, uh, we're very concerned about that. During a Fox News interview on Wednesday night, Trump insisted that the probe and others lodged against him in the past were nothing but political stunts. All nonsense, he said. New York radical left prosecutors come after me. You gotta fight. They go after good, hardworking people for not paying taxes on a company car. Company car. You didn't pay tax on the car or a company apartment. You used an apartment because you need an apartment because you have to travel too far where your house says you didn't pay tax or education for your grandchildren. I don't even know. Do you have to? But does anybody know the answer to that stuff? Okay. But they indict people for that. The indictment alleges that for five years, beginning in 2012, Weisselberg arranged for tuition expenses at a private school for his family members to be paid by personal checks signed by Donald. The company also paid annual lease expenses on two Mercedes-Benz cars for Weisselberg and his wife for at least a dozen years, beginning in 2005. In total, folks, the 15 counts against Weisselberg would result in 105 years in jail if found guilty on all counts. Struck every time I hear the president's, the former president's comments, he didn't say, you know, this is untrue, we're going to fight this. He didn't say like you would think a business owner might, this is outrageous, I can't believe this was going on at my company. Instead, he returns to witch hunt, because what can you say when prosecutors file a highly detailed document that that, uh, alleges with a lot of specific 
information that there was a pattern and practice across 15 years of doing all sorts of things to avoid both the payment of taxes by your employees and to permit the corporation to engage in some fraudulent conduct. Now this is great. The indictment also says the company maintained internal spreadsheets tracking the amounts it paid for Weisselberg's rent, utilities, and garage expenses, and that it accordingly reduced the amount of direct compensation to account for the expenses it was paying for him. Basically, they say there were two sets of books in the Trump Organization, and one set of books that was just for their internal use, they kept track of all the payments they gave to their executives, so the cash payments, the direct deposits, the regular salary, but also non-cash things like a free apartment or a free car, even furniture, flat screen TVs, carpet. They kept track of that stuff and they said, okay, well, if we gave you $100,000 in non-cash compensation, we're going to subtract that from the amount we're giving you in cash. So your salary stays the same. They treated that as compensation. But then the other set of books is what they showed to taxing authorities, allegedly. And it did not show any of that other stuff beyond just the regular salary. It didn't show the free apartments or the free cars or anything else. And so what the prosecutor said was this was a scheme to hide a huge portion of the executive's compensation. And that meant that the Trump organization and the executives themselves didn't pay taxes on that part of their salary. So word to the wise, if you're going to track illegal payments to your executives, maybe next time use a set of hidden books. Even the mafia knew to work in code. You just made it too easy for them. Well, what the hell is supposed to do, you moron? To be left out of the fun, Eric Trump gave an ill-advised defense of Weisselberg and the Trump Organization on Fox News, making a number of incriminating remarks that led many to believe that his father's company is actually guilty of doing what it has been accused of. Let's have a listen. Well, these are employment perks. These are, you know, these are, um, you know, a, a corporate car, which everybody has. I guarantee you there's people on this network that have corporate cars. I guarantee you there's people in every company in the country that have corporate vehicles. This is what they're going after. This isn't a criminal matter. This is, you know, it's really interesting, Raymond. After the financial crisis, right, they didn't go after a single person on Wall Street, despite the fact that these people were literally, they took down the U.S. economy, but they'll go down, they'll go after somebody after fringe employment benefits. Mm. Is that really what the DA is focused on, is little girls are getting shot in the middle of Times Square? They'll go after a corporate vehicle and a corporate apartment? Give me a break. People are leaving the, the, you know, the city in record numbers. It's dirty. It's disgusting. New York is no longer what it is. And they have an entire district attorney office and attorney general's office that's focused on three and a half million dollars to take down a political opponent. I mean, this is what they do. This is New York State for you. This, this is worse than a banana republic. It's it's truly horrible. It's truly well, horrible. And Raymond, you know this better than anybody. They're afraid that my father is going to run in 2024, and they're afraid that he's going to win. Make no mistake, last Thursday was just the beginning. Following the logic of a mafia prosecution, Vance and his prosecutors are simply setting the table and will surely be issuing a flurry of superseding indictments as the evidence bears more fruit. Investigators have been probing a number of the Trump Organization's other allegedly dubious practices in addition to this week's charges. In what is surely no coincidence, the indictment maps closely onto those other issues. They seem to be establishing the scaffolding on which they could hang other related charges if borne out by the developing evidence. For example, 
The indictment charges tax fraud for fringe benefits. Prosecutors are looking at other possible tax fraud, such as the handling of consulting fees, some paid to the Trump family, conservation easement, debt parking, and other questionable tax practices. To take another example, the indictment charges the maintenance of false records in connection with fringe benefits. Prosecutors also have been looking at whether the Trump Organization also maintained two sets of inconsistent records for its properties, inflating the numbers to get loans and insurance, and then deflating them for tax purposes. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. Who else knows that the president did this? Alan Weisselberg, Ron Lieberman, and Matthew Calamari. And where would the committee find more information on this? Do you think we need to review his financial statements and his tax returns in order to compare them? Yes, and you'd find it at the Trump org. The alleged concealment of hush money payments to Trump's mistresses that kicked off the New York investigation, you're welcome, could also be charged as a falsification of records offense. The repayments reportedly were accounted for by the company as, get a load of this shit, folks, as legal expenses. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire And now for the main event Despite the extreme legal pressure placed on Donald Trump Or likely because of that pressure He is acting more and more like a political candidate every day But let's be clear The man is not running for president in 2024 There's no fucking way His ego cannot stomach the possibility that he might lose and probably will. What he's doing is keeping the seat warm and himself viable so that he can keep those small dollar donations rolling in and use his political bully pulpit to decry the investigations and indictments into his company and most likely himself as a witch hunt. That said, Trump is Trump, so just about anything is possible, and despite all rational explanation, the man still controls a vast and loyal army of lunatic supporters. His control of the GOP is all but absolute, which means he will continue to push a cynical and authoritarian message that will target this nation's most vulnerable Americans. His big lie has already served as the impetus for the worst attack on voting rights this nation has seen in half a century. Then there is the demonization of African Americans and his attack on critical race theory, for which he has found gold with his MAGA base. Fox News has made it the new communism, covering the topic with wall-to-wall coverage while creating hysteria over something they have very little understanding of. The GOP has picked up this simplistic message and carried it even further and have begun to attack our institutions of higher learning. My next guest on Mea Culpa, Dr. Eddie Glau Jr., joins us at the perfect moment to discuss these issues and perhaps explain to all of us what critical race theory actually means and stands for and why these imbeciles continue to attack something that they don't even fucking understand. As the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and Chair of the Department of African American Studies, 
Cloud is one of the nation's foremost scholars of the African-American experience. He is the author of the 2020 book, Begin Again, which is about James Baldwin and the history of American politics, as well as six other books on the history of black America. Cloud can also be seen regularly on CNN, MSNBC, Meet the Press, and the Tavis Smiley Show. He joins me on Mea Culpa as the GOP has made critical race theory its number one boogeyman, along with vogue notions of wokeness, in addition to a full-on assault on the voting rights of African Americans and other minority groups. So let's listen now to that conversation. So, Eddie... My first question is one that I believe that most of us could use an answer to. What is exactly critical race theory? Because 99% of the people on both the right and the left who discuss the topic completely misunderstand or misappropriate its meaning. Can you give us the facts on this? Sure. I mean, it's, 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 in some ways, it emerges out of, out of law school. I'm thinking about people like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and others in response to the Baki case. And so the Baki case addresses the question of reverse discrimination, and there's all of this stuff. And so you have lawyers who said, look, we have to begin to think about prejudice and racism and discrimination in a much more complex way, right, in order to have a fuller understanding of how we're to decide these legal questions. We need to bring in these other issues. But it emerges out of the context, in the context of a series of very narrow questions around the law. Uh, and then how uh, these scholars reach for other sources to offer a much richer and more nuanced understanding of how we might think about discrimination and its legacy. But, but I think it's really important for us to, to really to, to just say this, Michael, and that is, if I may, that, that critical race theory as, as, as a catch-all phrase uh, isn't about its meaning. It, it doesn't matter whether these folk get it right or not whether they understand it or not, it's really about marshalling fears and resentment for political purposes and ends. So critical race theory becomes the catch-all phrase for any attempt to tell a fuller story about American history, for any attempt to to grapple with uh, the ugliness of of, of racism in our present and in our past. So on the one hand, it, it makes sense to try to get the phrase right. This is what critical race theory is. But on the other hand, whether whether they understand it or not is not the point. It's what they're trying to do with the phrase, and that is arrest any substantive or substantive change with regards to how we understand ourselves as a country. Agreed. Except, you know, if you if you look it up um, online, the first thing that it tells you is that it's an academic movement of civil rights scholars and activists. Okay, great. So now my listeners are getting a little bit more uh, of the sense of what actually critical race theory is. But these scholars and activists, they seek to critically examine uh, U.S. law as it intersects with issues of race in the United States. Now, again, from a definition standpoint, it sounds like it's easy to understand. It sounds like it's easy to um, put your, to put your, your, your grasp onto it, but it's really not. And something is getting lost, at least the way I see it, something is getting lost in the interpretation to the actual enactment 
of civil law because I see civil um, rights because I see things unfortunately heading in the wrong direction. Talking about whether it's voter suppression or you know the fact that former President Trump, the other guy couldn't even mention George Floyd's name as it related to something that we all know about is that there is a disproportionate number of black and brown people in incarcerated in the in the prison system for crimes that if you're white it could just be a fine or it would be handled uh, handled civilly so if you can help me to intersect this these two lines together? Well, again, critical race theory is a catch-all phrase to deal with what scholars like Ibram Kendi have talked about in terms of anti-racism or to deal with the New York Times 1619 project, right? The phrase doesn't actually refer in in our current political debate to that academic discourse. They're just using it. For anybody, for any attempt to tell a fuller story about the history of racism in the country. Now, why is why are we witnessing the, res, the resistance? Well, the resistance is important because it's part of what I take to be this, this deep anxiety around demographic shifts. There are those, and the insurrection January 6th is a part of this. It wasn't just reducible to Donald Trump. Right. Remember the insurrection to stop the steal. It had everything to do with Atlanta, Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, the so-called black and brown voters that were engaged in fraudulent behavior, as it were. Right. And so it's really about this sense that white America feels as if it's being replaced. We will not be replaced. Charlottesville. Right. I think the exact phrase by these anti-Semite, neo-Nazi, you know, white supremacist groups was Jews will not not replace us, which is reminiscent, of course, of 1935, uh, what took place in Germany, Poland, uh, and of course, all throughout the area. Right. But, you know, you're absolutely right. And, 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 And a social scientist, I think out of the University of Chicago, did a study of the majority of the folks who were arrested, who participated in the January 6th insurrection, and many of them came from districts that Biden had won. And many of them felt that they were that they that the demographic shifts in the country suggested that they were about to be replaced, that they were being marginalized. Right. And so the attack that is being that critical race theory represents. Right. Is this sense that these people are trying to tell a story of America that isn't true. They're beating us over their heads with over our heads with our sins. They're trying to drown us in our past. And so. Critical race theory, as you rightly described, is pretty straightforward. But the way it's being deployed in this moment is to is to, in some ways, stop this effort to reimagine, to tell a fuller story of America, because some people don't want to confront the ugliness of our past and our present. They just don't want to do it. That, that's true. And I've described it not only on this show, but uh, throughout the media, as it's really a series of individuals, specifically white, who are trying to keep the status quo, the power status quo for themselves. Now, again, this is not a black versus white issue. This is a different Donald Trump supporting you know, group that, as far as I'm concerned, this group 
they were hidden from us for so long because they didn't have a leader that was out there basically doing the exact same thing and wanting to keep the status quo. Mm. Uh, unless, of course, you're somebody like Oprah or Kanye or Mike Tyson, right? Or somebody that he could uh, sort of uh, look up to or acknowledge as being not his equal, but somewhere in that plateau, Right. And that's why uh, I think the definition and how it gets applied is so critical in terms of how we move forward, because you can't move this issue forward if you actually don't understand what it is. Right. And and again, I keep emphasizing that it's not they're not engaging it in good faith. They don't care what it means. That's the key. See, this is why this is what I've been telling my colleagues. Right. The argument isn't about whether they got whether they understand critical race theory. So I don't, I'm not interested in responding to them by saying that's just not correct. They don't care about whether it's correct or not. The, 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 the actual question is why are they doing this? Why are they invoking critical race theory in this moment? And it has everything to do with trying to stop what they see coming out of the responses to the George Floyd uh, murder they're 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 trying to halt what we've described elsewhere as this kind of racial reckoning that we're experiencing in the country. They don't give a damn what critical race theory means. It's a catch-all phrase. Charlie Sykes cited on Twitter a couple of weeks ago some guy within the some Republican operative who said we want to just paint everything with critical race theory. They don't give a damn about whether or not they got it right or not. So you and I could spend all of this time trying to say, no, they missed this point. This is not quite what it is. They don't care. And so the interesting point to me is to really get at the heart of it. And at the heart of this is this idea among some that this country has to remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe, that some people are uncomfortable fundamentally with the increased diversity of American life. They are uncomfortable with these racially ambiguous children on Cheerios commercials. They are uncomfortable with these same-sex couples <laughs> that they see. They are uncomfortable with these interracial couples. They don't, they don't give a damn about critical race theory. They're uncomfortable with what's happening in the culture, and they're trying their best to undo it. That's what I think. So, Eddie, you know, the GOP and Fox News are using critical race theory as a wedge issue to rally the base. And last weekend's Ohio Trump speech saw his biggest applause lines come from rallying against um, CRT and accusations of wokeness in the military and elsewhere. What do you believe has the MAGA cohorts so terrified of CRT? And what is it that they most misunderstand about its theory? They're trying, I think, again, it's, it's about the sense of being displaced. There is a panic, a terror at the heart of American life at this point. There are some of us, some among us. It's not all 75 million or 74 plus million, but many of them, like 20% of that core, right, who believe that the country has gone to hell, that government is more interested in black and brown folk than they are working white folks, that uh, America, as they've known it, is dead. And what we see are these shorthands, CRT, wokeness, these are just synonyms for political correctness. 
this this is this one can think about this as the culture wars 5.0 right we when we were when they were fighting it when we were younger right it was like an atari now this is like you know you know this is a this is a kind of technology that goes well beyond that 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 frogger that we used to play or something like that right it's 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 you know how can I'm, you see? I'm dating myself. I can't even find the language to describe contemporary gaming. So that. I think I think the way I think you're you're kind of describing the difference between Pong on Atari, right, where it used to it was almost <laughs> like a tennis game, right, versus what you have the PlayStation now with you know MLB, right, you know twenty twenty one or an Oculus or the Oculus and you're doing virtual yeah. reality stuff. That's the word I was looking for, right? So. You have Pong with two lines and a dot, and you have Oculus and a whole virtual world. So, but there's still the underlying logic is still the same. So, CRT or wokeness, this is just the latest language around co- political correctness. People want to hold on to their prejudices, they want to be able to say whatever the hell that comes to their mind without being held to account. So, if someone says the N word to me and if I'll pop them in the mouth, they're horrified that I popped them in the mouth. They want to claim free speech, right? They don't want to be held accountable for, for the things that they do and say. But we're in this moment of transition. The browning of America is happening. We have to figure out how we're going to be together differently. But what we're seeing instead is an old playbook with new technology, right? People are playing to white fear, white grievance, white resentment. And I should say this, in a moment when Americans, are, whether no matter their color, particularly poor white folks, are catching hell and people are exploiting that hell and their fears at the same time. Yes, but it's not actually America that has this fear or that's promoting this fear. It's the GOP. Mm. And it's a it's not every Republican. It's these sycophantic followers of Trump, the 25%, 20% of that base, that Republican base that is so concerned about retaining their status quo that they, they just refuse. They, they refuse on every level to acknowledge critical race theory. And they are the ones that are promoting this wokeness. Yes, they are infuriated about these commercials that feature homosexuals. They are furious about these biracial families on, you know, on these food commercials or on advertisements. You know, their feeling is that you're shoving your ideology down our throat. We don't like it any more than your decision to remove statues because it bothers people of color. So I, I want to put it this way, Michael. I think this is really important. On the one hand, I think you're right. But on the other hand, I don't want to make Trumpism exceptional. And what do I mean by that? Ronald Reagan, when he announced his, you know, when he was running for the presidency in 1979 and 80, he wanted to appeal to those George Wallace Democrats. And he went to, uh, you know, Neshoba County Fair and invoked states' rights in, in Mississippi. And everybody knew what the hell he was doing. There has been a longstanding tradition within the Republican Party 
to engage in dog whistles. You can't call them in words, but so you talk about busing. You can't, you know, invoke segregation. So you talk about urban policy and the like. There's been a long-standing tradition of this. But when you think about the elements of Trumpism, the elements of Trumpism, they're, they're caricatured versions of what has animated the Republican Party for, for decades. Tax policy, appealing to white grievance, right? Only the, the only difference, it seems to me, is foreign policy. Although there were elements within the Republican Party that were not, right, uh, um, committed to the kind of post-World War II consensus. And so Trump falls within that line. But what I, part of what I'm trying to suggest here is that Trumpism is the Republican Party, is Reaganism on steroids. People don't want to concede that claim, but I think it's true, right? So when, when Bannon lays out his buckets except for one, two of those buckets sound very familiar to me. It's just the execution. You know, you got P.T. Barnum doing it as opposed to some, as opposed to, you know, the Ronald Reagan. Right. You got the P.T. Barnum of of American politics as opposed to this charmer. Some might say B-list actor, but, you know, of of Ronald Reagan. So I want to say that there is some continuity here that we might want to interrogate. Yeah, I I listen. I agree with you. And I'm going to (laughs) defer to your intelligence in this area over mine. The world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up in person again. But after the year we've all had, getting back to feeling normal takes time. My journey back to the world started with being released from prison into home confinement. The only way I got through it was to prioritize my mental health and realize that it was going to take some time. If you're feeling overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always give the advice that we need. In my case, nothing they said related to what I was going through. Getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. When you're in a low point, you might feel alone, but over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. We all need help sometimes, and asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. Talkspace makes it easy to match with a licensed therapist and schedule live video sessions, all from the comfort of your device. You can start messaging your therapist the same day that you sign up. Whether you're a parent, student, millennial, or just someone having a hard day, Talkspace can provide the support to help you feel better with a single message. Talkspace offers individual and couples therapy, in addition to medication prescription services. Set goals with your therapist, and they can help make sure that you're really progressing. Talkspace works around your schedule, at your convenience. Send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app. Schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapists from anywhere. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or other problems, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issue. Thousands of licensed therapists are available for you to match with. Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more to help you start feeling better today. So start feeling better with a single message. 
Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code COHEN. That's $100 off when you use promo code COHEN at Talkspace.com. It's been a year since a wave of protests swept this nation over the killing of George Floyd and restarted a national conversation around race that was really well long overdue. Now, a year later, where has the conversation succeeded and where is it lagging? What are the threats to progress on the horizon as you see them? Because I see a whole lot of problems. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I see a whole lot of problems, too. You know, I was born and raised on the coast of Mississippi. I'm a Mississippi boy. And I grew up uh, with a lot. I know a little bit about hurricanes because I grew up on the coast. And what's so interesting about hurricanes, I'm just using this analogy as a way into the answer. The front end of a hurricane does a lot. It, 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 is, it is ferocious. It will tear up a town. And then you have the eye. And the eye is a moment of calm, but you can't, you know, you can't take it for granted. You, it allows you to come out. And, and look and see the damage. And, but the tail is coming. And the tail is just as ferocious as the front end. We're in the eye of the storm. The tail is still coming. And so I think one of the things that we do know is that uh, with the murder of George Floyd and the conviction of Derek Chauvin, there was this kind of face-to-face reckoning. It had a lot to do with the fact that we were all in our homes because of COVID. And many of us were dealing with loss at a, at a magnitude that the country hadn't experienced in generations. Um, and we all saw it because we're all home, stuck at home, watching television. And there was this sense as people in the midst of a pandemic protested and you had folk across generations, color, right, class, positions, all out in the streets. And we knew that something had to happen. And so you had these efforts and it, and it morphed into a broader kind of reckoning with our history. But almost immediately, and here's the, here's the backlash, almost immediately, what did we see? We saw efforts to curtail it, to arrest it, because people, Americans, must fundamentally believe that we're innocent. We cannot, we cannot concede, at least this is what I think, we cannot seem to concede the ugliness of our past without believing that we give up something unique about who we are as Americans. And so this confrontation with with racism, right, betrays the lie that we've told ourselves about who we are. And so people have to pull back. And so then, and what do we get? We get this backlash, the betrayal, the arresting of, of possibility of change. Even Tim Scott saying, America is not racist. And then Kamala Harris coming behind her, coming behind him. Yes, America is not racist, but we must acknowledge our past. We don't need to argue the claim. We just need to ask, why now are you saying it in order to arrest the scope of change? That's what that's what we see. So I agree with you completely on that. You know, and a lot of people miss also understand the fact that this movement is not about George Floyd. George Floyd is just one of many. And while whether his it's his his name is on the act um, that hopefully you know gets resolved. There's also Eric Garner. There's Michael Brown. There's also Laquan McDonald. There's 
dozens and dozens of this that go on and on on a daily basis. I think George Floyd was just, we'll call it the tipping point, where enough people said, fuck this, enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Every time that there's an issue and it's a black and it's a, a black male. Right. Doesn't mean that he has to be shot and killed. It doesn't mean that you have to draw a firearm. I, so what? Let's say the guy was, you know, selling, um, you know, individual cigarettes. Seriously. Or a fake twenty dollar bill. Right. Seriously. For that, you're going to pull a firearm. I, I mean, nobody should die. For twenty dollars, nobody should die for selling a, you know, a, an individual cigarette on the right. street. This it becomes a it it becomes obnoxious, if that's even the right word, to our core, to our senses and sensibilities. When a life, a human life, there is nothing more precious than human life. I know. I almost died when I was 39. I blew a whole series of pulmonary embolus. I was in the ICU staring at the whole the ceiling, the holes in there, counting them for, you know, for a week with tubes. You know, the first 48 hours were really touch and go. There is nothing more precious than human life. And to take a life, to take a life for a cigarette or a fake $20 bill, come on. It's, it, it gets to a point where it's, it goes beyond stupid. Yeah. And, you know, part of the challenge, of course, is that for for black people in this country, it's a part of our daily experience. I I, I said this during the during the protest, Mike, I said, um, as you know, people were watching the New York, New York Police Department respond to, to the protesters. And, you know, I said. Take out the tear gas, take out the rubber bullets, look at the aggression of the officers. Look at how they're treating the folks. And I said, that's how black communities and brown communities and poor communities are policed every day. And then somebody ends up getting killed. Right. So when somebody gets killed, that's at the that's at the that's at the back end of the police. Right. The way in which we're we experience a generalized sense of disregard, you know, in New York about stop and frisk, you know, about what that form of policing meant for particular communities that the studies that came out in terms of people being stopped for no reason and the percentage of folk not found to have anything on them. So, and here I'm going to invoke, I'm going to sound like a nerdy. I'm going to invoke Aristotle. Usually when you see this kind of public rage, it's not because of the event itself. It's accumulated disregard. It's layered upon layer upon layer. And the thing that's so striking about it is that when we see it over and over again, I, as a parent, and I'm at the height of my career, I worry. It's kind of, it's an experience of terror because you worry about your child. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about a police officer stopping your son, right? And your son having a bad day and says something that gets him not only cuffed, but maybe beaten or even killed. You don't have to worry about that. When they go out, when my son was a teenager and he went out to go to the parties like everybody else's teenager, we stayed up worrying that he might not come home. Or when the police officer brought the neighbor home, brought the neighbor's kid home because he caught the kid smoking weed. I remember calling my son up from down, calling my son from down upstairs and said, and he ran down the stairs because he heard the, the tone in my voice and he had on his pajamas and looking like a suburban kid. And I said, come here. 
look down the street. You see that? He said, oh, they must have caught him. I said, yes, they would not have brought your ass to me. I would have had to come to jail to get you. And that form, that difference of policing, evidences evidences itself at every level. And that's at the heart of what you're talking about. And a community can feel terrorized by that. And it, and, it, and, it, and it impacts our quality of life. I can, I can go on and on with all sorts of examples, but we can get to another question. Yeah, absolutely. What I hate to say, what I hate to say is it doesn't just impact, as far as I'm concerned, the black and brown community. I believe it impacts the communities of all Americans, right? White, right? Um, white, you know, white communities as well. I mean, the Alton Sterlings or the Freddie Grays. I mean, yeah, there's lists and lists that we can go on, but there comes a point in time that it changes the white community also in terms of what goes on in the black. We don't feel it the same way. I can I can never talk as you can because no different than I can talk about when my wife gave birth to our two children, what it feels like. I can't talk about what it must feel like to be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I just can't. It's not it's not something that I could put myself into those shoes. Mm-hmm. I can empathize with what's going on in the community. I have been unfortunately around it, you know, by having friends um, who are black. Um, you know, I've seen this firsthand happen. And so, and I can sympathize, but I cannot feel the rage and the mm-hmm. anger that the black community has. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the most I can do is to empathize with them and try to help to make a change so that, you know, the names of like these individuals Individuals, and there's so many more that haven't been named, you know, who have lost their life, uh, should never happen. Mm. And when you send your son out f- to go for dinner with friends or just to hang out, you shouldn't have on the back of your mind thinking that I pray to God that my child comes home, right? You should not have to. Nobody should have to. But on May 14th, in a string of tweets, you wrote, and I quote, It is clear that there are bad actors in the Republican Party. But what if the ideological approach of Republicans and conservative Democrats has proven itself as bankrupt? What does it mean then to compromise with those who hold such a view? Can you unpack what you meant here for my listeners? Sure. So I believe that part of the crisis we currently face, and I mentioned this earlier, is is that the age of Reagan is 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 over. It has collapsed. What are its pillars? Well, one of course involves tax policy. Another involves a conception of government that you know big government is bad. Another involved in some ways the expansion of the carceral state, how we think about policing. Right? So another involved uh, uh, how the private sector would drive in so many ways, right, our conception of the pu- of, of the public good. We want limited government. If, there, if there's going to be uh, a public kind of investment, it's going to be private-public uh, investment in a, in a large, large number of ways. And, and so part of what I'm trying to suggest in this moment is that that conception of government, right, has collapsed. In so many ways, COVID revealed itself, that there is a role for government in our lives. Um, what that role is, we need to see. We just saw, just saw a recent study just published, I think, a couple of days ago, showing that trickle-down economics, never it never reached, you know, working people, right? 
um, that this idea that if if we give if we if we offer tax relief for the rich that they will invest and then it will trickle down to everyday ordinary working people. The evidence is in that that doesn't that doesn't hold. So part of what I'm trying to suggest in that in that in that what I was trying to suggest in that series of tweets is that Reaganism. How can I let me put it this way, Mike? And I got this from Anand Giridatis. Reagan took the football off of the field of FDR. So for a long period of time, we were playing on the field and by the rules of 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 Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Reagan took the ball and put it on a different field with different rules. And we've been playing for the last last 40 years along with within those rules. We've been playing that game. The Democratic Party, the current Democratic Party, came into being under those conditions. It is a response to Reaganism in so many ways. And so part of what I'm suggesting is that if Reaganism is bankrupt and we still have actors holding on to that ideology and the evidence suggests that the country has not done well governed by that ideology, only a few people have done well, then what we need to do is to figure out a different way, a different contract. What are our obligations to each other? What are our obligations to the polity? What's the role of government? We need to be answering those questions in, in a much fuller way in this current moment. And we can't allow those who are committed to that old ideology to define the terms of how we answer those questions. You know, it's funny because normally when we talk about former presidents in terms of big social change and so on, they go back to Abraham Lincoln. We talk about our country's history. But people don't realize um, Ronald Reagan was president 40 years ago. And while there's been some pretty significant changes in the world, right, specifically the number of billionaires that are out there, right, and the way that now business is conducted from B to B as opposed to, you know, with retail stores and concrete brick and mortar, as they call it, so much has changed, but not this trickle down because the lowest economic group never got what was intended on trickle-down economics. They didn't get it 40 years ago, and they didn't get it in 2020, right? I mean, it's just the truth. And yet, I saw a study that said, and I have no issue. I've had some guests on this show that have some very significant issues with billionaires and so on. Mm -hmm. Obviously, everybody aspires for great success during their lifetime. You do have to acknowledge and sort of admire folks like um, uh, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, right? Elon Musk, you know, Zuckerberg. And what I really admire the most about guys like Gates and Buffett and others is their um, willingness to donate the amounts of money that they do in order to create benefit. Now, a lot of people will say that that's, you know, for them to get tax breaks and so mm-hmm. on. And it's really a bunch of bullshit. It's really about self it's wealth preservation for generations to come. I don't know if I agree with it, nor do I really care because they are doing good with with that money. But we've never seen 2,000 billionaires out there that you put these billionaires together, their, their income right, is greater than 
the bottom 60% of this country's wealth. I mean, that's a staggering. 2,000 people control more wealth than over 60% of this, of, you know, of the United States of America. That's a staggering, staggering number. And, you know, look, uh, at the end of the day, you know, it's just, it's just the way that it is. But the hope is that somewhere along the line, somebody can come up with an answer as to how this trickle down will ultimately reach those people who it's intended for. And I obviously don't have, I'm not an economist. I'm not, um, I don't have the ability to model this one out, but I would love to see if somebody could. Well, you know, I think race and greed threaten to choke the life out of our Republic. The combination of the two constitute the umbilical cord wrapped around the, the neck of a, of a new America, choking the life out of it. And it seems to me, you know, I mean, the power of the American worker had everything to do with the contract between the worker and the industrialist. We're going to pay you a wage sufficient enough so you can buy the things that you want to buy. We're going to pay you a wage sufficient enough that you can send your kids to college, Right. We're going, to, we're going to have this contract. And what we've seen over the last 40 years is, for the most part, the flatlining of, of wage earn. We've seen a recent uptick, but not much. But the flatlining of wages among everyday ordinary workers. My dad, I was blessed. My dad came out of Vietnam, took the post office test, was the second African-American hired at the post office. And by virtue of being the second African-American hired at the post office in Pascagoula, Mississippi, I was able to live a middle-class life. We see what they're doing to the post office now, right? So there's a sense in which everyday ordinary workers, and we must remember that workers aren't just simply white people. All workers, no matter their color, their background, are struggling to keep their damn noses above water, trying to make ends meet, busting their behinds, working 40 hours or 50 hours a week, and they can't make a damn living wage. And we're so selfish as a country, that we don't want to commit ourselves to the idea that if you work 40 hours a week, you should be able to keep a roof over your head and put put food on the table and send your kid to college. And it seems to me, unless we get that right, we seal the country's fate. We seal the, it was so bad, wealth, wealth inequality is so bad in the country that when Alan Greenspan stepped down, he said, and, and Barack Obama said the biggest challenge to the polity, this was before Trumpism emerged, the biggest challenge to, to American democracy was, race, was wealth inequality, the class divide. And that isn't black-white. Of course, it had disproportionately impacts black and brown folk in interesting sorts of ways. But workers are busting their asses and not making ends meet. And it's just wrong. It's evil, in my view. And it needs to be changed. Hi folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, check out last Thursday's episode with Ulrich the Mole Larson, who spent 10 years undercover in North Korea, infiltrating its illicit arms trade. Truly unbelievable, made for Hollywood stuff, but it's all true. This show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. 
And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Like the February 2nd episode with Ramit Sethi, who will teach you to find your dream job. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode on how to deal with corrupt and crooked bosses, addiction, brain chemistry, and so much more. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But Eddie, yesterday you retweeted a USA Today column from Kurt Bardella, I like Kurt, where Mm. he writes, and I quote, when it comes to the January 6th select committee, all Democrats have to do is show the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Republicans know that and they're terrified of it. It's time to find out why. What in your mind are they most afraid of answering and why? How complicit they were in all of it. Right. That they that they knew. That he they knew that Trump had called these folk. They knew that they were coming. They knew what they were going to do. They're complicit, as we would say back home from the rooter to the tooth. They're complicit and they're going to be revealed. They're going to reveal themselves as being. I mean, it's like the piece in the Atlantic with Jonathan Carl with uh, 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 Bill Barr the other day. And you see Mitch McConnell saying explicitly, right, we need to talk. We need you need to come out and say this lie is not it, it has no basis. He says for the country and for the Republican Party. But he's not saying a word. He's McConnell is quiet. So I think what the commission will show is the level of complicity among certain kinds, among certain members of the Republican Party that implicates them in the violence of January 6th. And they don't want that to be known. That's my that's my gut feeling, Michael. I don't know. What do you think? You quoted Aristotle. So I'm going to I'm going to show you. I read a little bit, too. I, I'm going to actually quote Buddha on this. You know, the three things that always rise, the sun, the moon and the truth. And that's the biggest problem. And I'm with you 100 percent on it. They cannot afford to allow the truth to come out. Because Mitch fucking McConnell, who is the dark overlord of the GOP, he knows that his entire, his entire power play, the GOP as, a, as an institution, will be sunk in these 2022 and 2024 elections if in fact the truth comes out that Republicans were actually involved, that there are a series of Republicans that were actually involved in the organization of the insurrection, in getting them into the building, right? Mm-hmm. The money that they're raising off of it. I mean, that's the craziest shit out there. You take a Marjorie Taylor Greene, or you take fucking Josh Hawley, and you turn around every time that these two assholes go out on the road, she's picking up two, three, four million dollars. Really? Ser- seriously, folks? You're taking your pandemic money that's going to run out in September? 
where you don't have a job yet and you're going to give it to Marjorie Taylor Greene because she's promising you white status quo? Because she's talking about we have to stand with Donald Trump in August. Donald Trump is going to be reinstated as president. First of all, they have to wake the fuck up. All right. And this is where people get angry. Like, oh, you're yelling. And, you know, and so they have to wake up. First and foremost, Donald Trump will never be reinstated as president. Not in not in August, not in September, not even in 2024. It's just not going to happen. First of all, let's just talk about August for a second. It's not happening. Congress isn't even around. I worked I worked in the White House in 87 and 88 for Congressman Joe Moakley. I know. And so does anybody that studies or reads that they take off for the summer. They're all for the month of August. Even if Trump somehow was to be reinstated as president and the Bidens needed to move out, there's not even a mechanism to do it because Mm. Congress isn't even there. So the notion that he's coming back in, why they picked August, it just goes to show you it's no different than Rudy Giuliani's speech at the Four Seasons Landscaping. It's just another error by a bunch of idiots. End of story. Right. And that's really what we have. So the truth will come out just as the truth in my case will ultimately come out. And the truth, for example, like what's happening with Matt Gates. Matt Gates deserves to be thrown out of Congress altogether. First of all, he is an absolute disgrace as a representative of our people. I don't give a shit what state he's from. I don't care whether he won by a landslide or by one vote. He is a disgrace as a human being. His behavior towards women is a disgrace. The fact that he was obstructing justice and witness tampering during my House Oversight Committee hearing and the plethora of things that he's done. How they end up throwing out a guy like um, uh, Al Franken and... And this and this pedophile ends up staying right in as a representative of our country. It's an embarrassment to the entire world of, you know, it's just it's just it is what it is. And my hope is that the truth does come out because the American people, whether you're Republican, Democrat, independent, the American people want to know the truth. What really went on there? Now, I know the truth. I know what was going on in Trump's head because I know him so well. I sat next to that fucking asshole for over a decade. And I know exactly what he was thinking when he was watching the television. He was loving the fact that all of these people were creating chaos in his name. He was counting the number of hats. You know, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, 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 look at them. Look at them. Look what they're doing for me. Uh, 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 uh. And he's counting the freaking red hats saying, oh, at $25, 25 $50, $75, 100 Somebody come here, write that down. Put a one check. 25 50 75 And he's sitting there and he's counting how much money he made on these people that are sitting outside when he told them to go to the Capitol. I'll see you there. But what did the chicken shit do? He went running right back to the White House to go watch them on television. He wasn't going to put himself in danger. Why? The king never goes to war. The king sits in his castle and he gets reports of what's going on. Here, the report was CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. Plain and simple. What I find fascinating about what you just described, uh, it it reminds me of, of, of your hearing before Congress, your testimony before Congress. And something that you said that I've never quite forgotten. You said that he would he would never, and I'm not paraphrasing here. You correct me. He would he that that you were there would never the be pe- there would never be a peaceful transfer peaceful transition of power? exactly, and that and that this seems to be what we're experiencing 
since the election, all of this seems to be a part of of his refusal. Even even the nonsense around August, right? That all of this is a part of that claim that you're make that you made way back when, right? That he would never concede defeat in this sense. What do you make of of of, of me saying of me seeing the relationship between what you've just described and that claim you made in that congressional hearing? Eddie, you're spot on. You you spot on. You get an A plus in that one, as does everybody that acknowledges two years ago. You know, I had a, a little Nostradamus moment and I and I predicted what was going to happen, not because I'm clairvoyant, but because I know the animal and I know that he had no interest in ever giving up the office of the presidency. He truly believes he's ordained from God and therefore he is the only one that could lead this country in a positive direction. And this cult leader has managed to convince 25% of this country into believing his bullshit. It's amazing. I believed his bullshit for a long time and I don't consider myself to be the dumbest guy out there. Right? I'm not the smartest, but I'm certainly not the dumbest. He, I fell for it hook, line, and sinker. The only thing that broke me out of the cult, out of the trance, was the incarceration. Short of that, I probably would be standing there. You know, I wouldn't be defending him on so many of these issues because, you know, we used to argue like cats and dogs over things. I had an argument with him in the Oval Office about um, what he called the immigration ban, and I said to his face, that's not true. It's a Muslim ban. And you cannot... Under any circumstance, you cannot ban a religion from coming into the United States. That would be no different than like when my father, um, who's a Holocaust survivor, was coming to the United States. Of course, he had to then go to Canada because they had malaria. But, (laughs) you know, all these we're banning all Jews from coming to America. You can't do something like that. Well, of course, he then said it wasn't me. It was Steve Bannon. It was Steve Miller. But we'll get it right the next time. The notion that you would even allow that as the president, someone like Steve Bannon or Steve Miller to step foot into the Oval Office is a desecration of the people's house. And it never should have happened. So I knew what Trump was up to. He wasn't ever going to. If he would have won the second term, rest assured, he would right now be campaigning for 2024 and then for 2028, which he used to joke about all the time, thinking that people would say, oh, that's just Donald being funny or trying to be funny because he doesn't have a sense of humor, right? It's not. He was laying a predicate for ultimately being an autocrat. He wanted to be like Vladimir Putin to Russia. He wanted to be the Vladimir Putin of America. That's what he was looking for, not to be the president for all people. He wanted, to be, he wanted to be the autocrat for himself. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So, Eddie, as we move on, sure. the Democrat response to four years of Donald Trump seemed to partially hinge on this idea of a return to normal. But there is an obvious push by the GOP to prevent that from happening. Nothing is normal at the moment, from the assault on voting rights to the infiltration of the GOP by the Proud Boys and other extremist groups at both the state and local levels as they run for seats in the state uh, legislature and push their agenda. How did Democrats push back against this rising tide? I mean, counting on people wanting a more rational country now seems to just be wishful thinking. If you can, discuss this with me and my listeners. You know, I think... The Democrats need to govern and govern with and govern with. How can I put this delicately? Govern as Don't. if they hold, <laughs> as if they Don't. have balls, 
right? Govern, govern with power, it seems to me. We, we cannot attribute to the Republican Party good faith. They're not good actors. They're bad actors. Most of the folks, McConnell is a bad actor. Kevin McCarthy is a bad actor. They don't engage in good faith. So it seems to me that the Democratic Party has to pursue its agenda aggressively, right? All of this talk about bipartisanship and the like, if it happens, it happens. When the Republicans have power, they just exercise, period. And it seems to me only right that if we're going to right the ship of, of this nation, that Democrats need to put forward a vision, and I think President Biden has, that will set the stage for us uh, 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 moving beyond this very dark hour in our history. But the only way that's going to happen is that they're going to have to govern without this, this idea that suddenly because Trump is gone, the Republican Party will now become rational, reasonable. And this is where I thought Hillary Clinton made her mistake when she ran against Donald Trump. And I think people made this mistake when Donald Trump was in office. They kept separating Trumpism from the Republican Party. And I think that that was a mistake. Trump is just simply a reflection of the rot within the party that's within the country itself. And so I think the only way we're going to, to move forward is to govern accordingly. That means govern with the assumption that unless proven otherwise, the other party is full of bad faith actors. We shouldn't trust them as far as we can throw them, period. You know, there was a movie, I think it was called like Stand, um, Stand, Stand and Deliver or something like that, where they talk mm -hmm. about Crazy Joe, right, the, the, the teacher, the teacher. Uh, yeah. and so on. And he made, he made a principal. statement, right. I remember from years and years ago, the principal. And I remember he turned around, he goes, you know, one, one bad apple spoils the bunch. But what about a dozen rotten to the fucking core? And that's what we have with the GOP from the top down. Donald Trump, rotten to the fucking core. Then you had Mike Pence. Well, I don't know if I would say he's rotten to the core. He's just fucked up, right? I mean, he's not even a vice president. He was just, he was like a fucking lapdog. And then you had Mitch McConnell and you had, you know, so many of these, so many of these guys, they didn't want to do anything. This was all about their maintaining power for themselves. That's all that they cared about. Mitch McConnell, the same. I mean, the first thing that he says to Joe Biden after congratulating him on, on the win, yes, folks, Joe Biden actually won the election. The first thing he says to him is, there's not a single legislative event that you intend to pass that I'm going to permit. I mean, that's some, that's really some speaker, isn't it? Mm. How do we move forward as a country? Well, I mean, we have to expose that for what it is. He doesn't give a damn, of, to my mind, he only, to my mind, and I think the evidence suggests this to be true, that there are folks who care more, more about holding on to the reins of power than they do about the country, period. There's, there are those among us who are willing to throw democracy into the trash bin before we embrace the fact that we're truly multiracial multi-ethnic society. There are those among us who have revealed, have revealed in their behavior, their actions, that they don't really give a damn about the US, about the United States as it is, but only in terms of how they presume it should be.
They don't give a damn about who we are. They only care about what they care about. And we need to, I think we need to paint them as such, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's just pathetic. But, you know, Eddie, the only way to break the fever on this, in my opinion, is to break the filibuster. How does Biden and his fellow Democrats deal with set, like people like Senators Manchin and Cinema, who seem to be the last holdouts and wish to occupy some ridiculous middle ground where bipartisanship still exists? Because this is what we're talking about. Bipartisanship does not exist. This isn't the old Tip O'Neill mm. where you get into an argument, you go out for a beer later and you resolve you know, your differences one way or the other. There is no bipartisanship. You have Mitch McConnell telling the president to his face, telling the country there is nothing that this man can try to do that I'm going to go along with, including, for example, the COVID pandemic relief package mm -hmm. something that americans needed in order to sustain their lives what do we do here i think we need to understand that joe manchin and, and kirsten cinema are providing cover for not for, for for some other democrats who don't want to support the for the people act remember i said that there there's a conception there's an idea of the democratic party that comes into being in response to reaganism that the Republican, this is not just simply a GOP story in terms of the trouble we're in. It's not just simply the rot over there. It's the rot in our politics. So I think there are more than just these two Senate senators who are, who, who are um, standing in the way of, of, of fundamentally changing uh, how, how, or let me say it differently, of supporting uh, our democracy. Because it seems to me rather straightforward we could easily establish a filibuster carve out for the voting right for voting rights. You you did it for Supreme Court justices. You did it for judges, federal judges. I mean, why can't we do a carve out for the most sacred uh, uh, tool in our democracy, and that is the right to vote? Uh, and it has something to do with politicians who are uh, uh, committed to staying in office, who are, who don't want uh, 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 folks who who don't have money, think about what happened in Connecticut when they went to public financing for campaigns. How you had these folk coming out of the blue, little local, the local school board person, the person who just has been working in their neighborhood, suddenly running for office and winning. Right? You have politicians who want to protect uh, their little fiefdoms. So I, I Mansion and Cinema are just simply the face of it. The problem cuts much deeper. It seems to me. And I think if we and this shows that I'm not a partisan in this sense. Right. I'm a Democrat, small d, that the problem cuts across these things, Michael. And we need to understand that for what it is, because people need to be fighting more aggressively for a filibuster carve out around voting rights and that we're not seeing it. And if we don't do this, you know what? Uh, 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 Raphael Warnock will be uh, a he won't even be a full one-term senator. He's going to lose in Georgia, right? Those two seats in Georgia are going to be gone if they don't do if they don't get this right now, because they keep bringing um, they keep bringing uh, a wet noodle to a gunfight. I mean, it's not even a knife. They keep bringing a, a pool noodle to a gunfight. They need to fight more aggressively, and it, because the fact that they're not suggest that there's something else going on. Well, I've also been imploring President Biden and Vice President Harris and all of the Democrats who have a voice 
to do whatever it is that you can do. Take a little bit of the playbook of Donald Trump, of the narcissistic sociopath that he is, and turn around and say, you know what? There are things that I can do by executive order. And if you can do something by executive order, screw this bipartisanship because it's not going to happen. And you're just going to waste so much time in terms of trying to get it passed. Why don't you do what Trump did? Take out your little Sharpie, put the piece of paper in front, have the cameras all sitting there as if you were signing the Emancipation Proclamation, which he, of course, would never have done. Right. And move forward, move forward with what you can accomplish today, and screw the rest of them. And as far as filibuster, you got to get rid of it. I keep, I keep saying that. If you're in power, you're in power. Because the goal is to allow the elected individual, the president of the United States, to work on his agenda. Not your agenda, Mitch McConnell or Joe Manchin or, you know, or anybody else. Work on the president's agenda. That's the person who the people voted for. And then all of these folks, I mean, the notion that all of these individuals want the president to fail. That's like getting onto an airplane and wanting the plane to crash or getting onto a bus and hoping it goes over a cliff. What are you thinking? You understand that if President Biden fails, the country fails, you fail, right? And instead they think, well, no, 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 because I'll still be in power. And then in four years, we'll take the house back and then I'll recoup not only the power, but I can also make more money off of it and so on. I mean, this is really crazy what's going on with these, you know, with these politicians and their quest for ultimate power themselves. But, you know, Eddie, as we get to the final hour um, or the final question, as we're coming down to the end of the of this of this conversation, I have one last question for you. Florida Governor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently championed a bill that could wreak havoc on the freedom of speech and academic freedom of Florida's institutes of higher education. Now, the law would require all public colleges and universities to survey students, professors, and staff on their political beliefs in what DeSantis said is an attempt to, and I promote intellectual diversity, whatever the hell that means. Can you explain to my listeners and to me as well what in actuality this bill is trying to do? And is it even constitutional? I don't think so. That's the easy part of the answer. That's the easy part of the question. I don't think so. But look, for many Republicans, universities and colleges are the last bastion for liberalism. Right. This is the place where that produced the hippies of the 60s. Right. This is the place these are the places that produce the, the kind of cultural um, tumult that define that decade of the country's history, right? And so ever since then, there has been this ongoing assault on, on American universities. You look at University of Wisconsin-Madison, once an extraordinary institution, and what the state legislature has done to that amazing place. You look at what's going on in North Carolina. You look what's going on in Texas, right? There's been an assault, an ongoing assault on America's public education system. Part of our, I think it's part of our decline as a nation as well. And then it's this ironic reversal. There's always this complaint, Michael, that that the so-called left is engaged in cancel culture. This is another example of, of who engages in cancel culture in the name of intellectual diversity. What they mean by intellectual diversity, they want campuses that allow for uh, uh, ideas that, 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 
people might describe as conservative. That's a generous description. But, you know, they're not talking about ideas like Holocaust deniers. They're talking about people who argue against affirmative action, people who argue against. And those ideas circulate in the academy all the time. Uh, but they and they don't tend to apply this intellectual diversity to places like Wheaton. Right. Or, or conservative institutions. Right. It's always directed at so-called liberal institutions. So I think this is a an example of 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 the irony that they are always engaged in cancel culture. And B, this is just the latest salvo uh, uh, against what they take to be the last, the citadel of, 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 of radicalism, and that is universities and colleges. Um, I work in one, I've been working in, in a university at a college for almost 30 years. Um, they're wrong and they're not gonna win, so. Yeah, I mean, it's these universities and colleges. This is where civil rights movements started. This is where, you know, the um, gay rights movements started. This is where so many movements started. It's really started with the young people because, you know, the young people have different ideas. You know, they grow up in a different age, a different generation, different thought process. Obviously, if you would go back to our great grandparents and you see a commercial with two men, you know, hugging and kissing on television, I think that your great grandparents would be, first of all, I think they'd be shocked considering, I'm not even sure they were televisions, but let's at least say <laughs> our grand, my grandmother, right? right? And so she'd be like, you know, what, like, what is this? I mean, do you remember the, there was a big, big scandal back into the, I think it was the 1966 or 68, something like that, with the very first biracial kiss. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which took place, which took place on? Which, uh, which? On Star uh, Trek. Star Trek. On Star Trek. Uhuru and, right, and, between, and Kirk. between, and Captain Kirk. That's right. And that was, sort of, oh, my God, could you believe what we just saw on television and so on? That's like the start of how things progress forward. People say, who cares? What's the difference? Right. He could kiss whoever he wants. If he wants to kiss a billy goat, kiss a billy goat. What's it your business? And so we mature over time. I mean, think about it. Right. Over 55 years, how far things have advanced, but yet how far more that they need to advance. So, Eddie, thank you so much for your intellect. Thank you so much for, you know, your explanations on so many areas that really, truly need explanation. And um, let's stay in touch uh, as more of this is certainly, you know, going to be affecting each and every one of us. I appreciate you, man. And you take care of yourself. Thank you. I'm going to try. And now for today's mea culpa. Watching Alan Weisselberg shuffling into Manhattan criminal court last Thursday, handcuffed like a common perp, filled me with profound joy. I shouted so loud at the television, my poor wife thought I was having a heart attack. In one moment of intense catharsis, I was able to finally let go of three years of pain and anguish over my own situation as I watched Alan finally succumb to what amounts to the end of his life as he knows it. Yes, I know, I know. I should be the bigger man, the better man, and not take pleasure in another man's misery. But fuck that. Karma is a bitch, Alan, and it's your turn to take a big, giant bite of the shit sandwich that the DA is about to make you eat. But I also know what you're going through right now. Did you get the call yet from the boss? I remember when I got mine right after the FBI raided my home. Don't worry, Michael. I got your back. Are you okay? He whispered into the phone like a mafia don. 
but that call is not about you. He's not interested in you beyond trying to figure out if you pose a threat to him. After that, I never heard from him again. I expect the same will happen to you as Trump tries to find a way to throw your ass under the bus and make you solely responsible for the rampant criminality at the Trump Organization. All those years of service to Donald Trump are about to be rendered meaningless. In the parlance of your boss, Alan, you're about to go through some things. Now I know what you're thinking, that you'll keep quiet into a few years and when you get out the boss will have a nice package waiting for you in the Cayman Islands. First of all, you're looking at over a hundred years if you're found guilty on all charges and Trump doesn't have that kind of liquidity right now. And you know it. He's going down too. There's no way around it. Even if he does end up behind bars, he's financially fucked. The banks are never going to lend you money again and the ones that have are going to call in their loans immediately. So face it, Trump's going bankrupt again. That leaves you with only one move, and that's got to be to flip. Get out ahead of this, open your kimono, and tell the truth. I know you think of that as betrayal, but I also know what it's like to have those cuffs on, to stand in the courtroom, to know your life is fucking over. Except in your case, you can save yourself from dying in prison of old age by simply rolling over for the DA. That's the best you're going to do. So good night and good luck, buddy, because you're going to need it. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa. Nothing but the truth.
Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Capital Region and Bracebridge Hall, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. And now it's Geico's Motorcycle Rules of the Road. Before you ride, make sure your mirrors are clean and adjusted properly. And if you're going on a group ride, make sure the lead biker knows where they're going. Uh, Ed, quick question. Where are you taking us? Oh, I have no idea. What, am I the leader? <laughs> because I was uh, following that dude with the red helmet. Where? Where is he? And the rule to saving on motorcycle insurance is, in 15 minutes, GEICO could save you 15% or more.